our mortality or total deaths in New Zealand are actually significantly higher than the average, uh, say, between 2011 and 2019. So, so the question then is, is uh, the single-minded focus on addressing one disease is effectively kind of blinding us towards many other things that are happening. The other issue here, and there are many issues, I mean, because, you know, I've written a whole book on this, is that there is a significant kind of uh, develop nation, uh, developing nation divide here, that uh, the developing nations that don't have any kind of social welfare system, etc., the lockdowns there have been particularly devastating. And, and part of the issue here is that because the developing countries tend to have a much younger population in general, for many of them, COVID-19 wasn't going to be a deadly disease. They have many more deadly diseases to deal with, tuberculosis, HIV AIDS in, in parts of South Africa and surrounding countries, um, malaria, dengue, diarrhea, etc., are much bigger killers. So, so there are maybe 60 countries in the world out of 200 countries that have a median age that's less than 30 years old. So these are countries where 50% of the population are less than 30 years old. So this is a very young population as opposed to developed countries that tend to have a population that tends to be older. So for many of these countries, mostly in Africa and some in Latin America, uh, COVID-19 deaths have been very low, and therefore these countries really didn't have to do a whole lot to address COVID. And in trying to do that, by taking their cues in terms of lockdowns, they have actually caused significant damage. Um, for instance, uh, in, this is information from the World Health Organization that vaccination for literally 100 million children have not been done or have not been done properly. So what's happening already in third world countries is diseases that have somewhat been eradicated like polio or measles are now uh, coming up quite rapidly. So um, anyway, so that's sort of the lockdown and I could go on on about that. But the problem has been that um, trying to say some of these things has been branded as almost heretical thought in not only New Zealand, but in large parts of the world, I think. Uh, I think the tide is changing, and the tide is changing in different ways in different countries. Uh, but by and large, criticizing the response in any way has been deeply problematic. Uh, and this kind of go leads into your next question about free speech, so, so my problem has always been that um, the way the the hate speech law. Well, let me let me back up for a minute. So, this is quite well known that in times of crisis, in times of war, governments typically try to expand their power significantly, right? Um, and so, we kind of trade off civil liberties for you know a sense of safety. But as I, I've written this many times, I think it's Benjamin Franklin who said this, that those who would sacrifice eternal liberties for temporary safety will have neither liberty nor safety. Now, I'm not an absolutist. I understand. I understand the need for social cohesion, right, for collective action. In fact, if you look at my webpage, you'll find that I'm actually on the authorities on 
um, on how we manage or generate collective action, collective action for for common good, for instance, things like climate change, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but you need a balance. You cannot go too far to the extreme where you sacrifice individual liberties for for social cohesion, right? And so the hate speech law is uh, from... I should, probably should have looked it up before I talked to you, but but it's very ill-defined, right? And what it does is it says that if you are considered to be attacking a particular group based on their characteristic, then that would be considered hate speech. Now, what exactly is a characteristic? So, for instance, if you if I just if I say what I just said that you know. COVID is a bigger problem for countries with an older population than countries with a younger population, then am I attacking elderly people, right? Um, If I say that, um, you know, we should not be sacrificing essential liberties to coerce people into getting vaccinations, am I attacking the medical community, right? But the way the law is framed, now, of course, you could argue that the government is not going to prosecute people for these kinds of things. But but that's not what the law says. The way the law is written, the government can prosecute political speech or uh, unpopular speech. And the problem with this is um, even if a current government doesn't prosecute that, that doesn't prevent a future government from from prosecuting people under this law, right? Um, Just to give you some examples, uh, for instance, you know that the first nine days of the April 2020 lockdown was considered unlawful by courts. In response, the government uh, passed the Public Health Response Act. Among other things, it gives police the right to enter people's homes without a warrant if they think social distancing protocols are being violated. This is a massive overreach, and many uh, regimes would think twice about giving police this right. And here is the problem. The problem is once the police have entered on the ground of public health, suppose they find something objectionable. Is that can they prosecute on that basis? For instance, how does the Public Health Response Act prevent ordinary citizens from the right of protection from illegal search and seizure? So the government never uh, addresses these questions, and I'm surprised people haven't addressed these questions. Similarly, um, I've written about this, I think, um, Standing Order 55 of the Parliamentary uh, of the Parliament passed last year now gives the government or the prime minister the right to suspend parliament on the advice of the uh, of the director general of health right but the director general of health is employed by the prime minister is he not i mean he reports to the prime minister and so does the speaker of the house in some sense right so the director general of health tells the prime minister you can suspend parliament on health grounds the the prime minister tells the speaker, and parliament stands suspended. Now, suspending parliament is traditionally considered a major step. According to New Zealand's unwritten constitution, 
the power to suspend or prorogue parliament belongs to the uh, belongs to the governor general why would you know of course the governor general is a titular position and if the prime minister asked the governor general to perform a particular action the governor general would probably perform it but why would you leave out the governor general from this process right because the only reason the governor general is there is to act as a check and balance on the executive right so the prime minister says you know i want parliament to shut down the governor general says well do you think it's such a good idea right but what the standing order 55 does is remove and fairly fundamental checks and balance check and balance on the executive uh, in the country now these things happen i understand these things happen in the times of stress but these things gradually kind of gnaw away at some foundational aspects of democratic polity and i'm surprised that the opposition parties did not oppose this last year when this was proposed that the prime minister can unilaterally sort of suspend parliament uh, for one month at a time because see what happens is if i understand correctly and again i'm not a lawyer the prime minister can keep doing this suspend parliament maybe bring it back for one sitting suspend it again and the problem with all these things is that you don't know what will happen in the future you, you cannot really rely on the individual goodwill of particular politicians to say oh well we will not be abusing this law in any shape or form that's what laws are you know laws kind of make sure that certain rights and liberties are not violated and therefore even if you ascribe a certain amount of goodwill to a particular group of people you don't know if that goodwill will persist uh, over time i've been talking for a long time i'm going to stop and maybe no 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 i'm i'm very happy that you've been talking i've just been sitting here nodding a lot i feel like you've articulated so much of what i've been thinking over the last few weeks but i haven't had a way to put it into words like I'd forgotten about the police being able to enter your home without a warrant under the covid laws like that's a huge deal for police to have that kind of I guess unprecedented power but but it did go through and I just kind of forgot about it and now like suspending parliament as well these things should be a huge deal and we should be asking questions about all of it so yeah it's great to talk to someone who's obviously doing that and asking the questions have you experienced much of a, a backlash to questioning or criticizing the government when it comes to the covid response yes of course i mean you know i mean depends on how you view the backlash in some sense so there's always you know it's it's been it's raising these questions have been difficult and um i kind of understand some of this because that's what i talk about in my book right so um we we are subject to a lot of sort of cognitive biases so so i talk about this example for instance that when the um 911 attacks happened for instance in the next year or so people decided that you know flying was too risky so they all drove and this led to a significant increase in automobile accidents in the united states right so when these these crises happen it's um it's 
normal human reaction, you know, I mean, this sort of this fight or flight kind of response, which makes us focus on these things. But the problem is that it's also important not to give in to this too much. I mean, our responses to any crisis must be proportional to the risk that is posed, right? And it is it is difficult when governments overreach to an extent where the balance seems to have been completely swayed in, in one particular direction, right? I mean, for instance, if you think about this for a minute, over the past year, we have said okay to not letting citizens come back to their own country. This is a fairly fundamental right, the right of return, right? So we said, look, we don't want you coming back. And if you come back, you will have to pay for it. Other than the Australians, I don't know of anyone else, any other country in the world that has implemented this policy. I could be wrong. And we are talking substantial amounts of money, right, that you'll have to pay besides the plane fare, getting a plane ticket just for the right of returning to your own country. This doesn't sound correct to me. Similarly, for nearly 18 months now, we have separated lots and lots of families who have perfectly valid visas or residence status, and they're all in limbo right now. So we are not getting the balance right now. This is an age-old, this is kind of almost evolutionary, this tussle between kind of group conformism and individualism. This is essentially an evolutionary struggle, right? Because um, conforming to the group norms brings obvious benefits, right? I'm close to the group. I you know, move with the group. And then in times of trouble, the group comes to my aid. But that prevents individual expression, risk-taking, innovation, right? So then we kind of have individualistic uh, tendencies. But being too far away from the group has risks because you may be disowned by the group, which is what's happening to many people around the world. The group will not come to your aid if you get into trouble. So this is this has been a tussle for a long time. But currently, I think we are uh, becoming excessively conformist. And that also has problems. As I said, giving up some of these rights and liberties, looking back, I think we will... I believe maybe five years, maybe 10 years, we'll look back at these lockdowns and we will realize that they were not appropriate. They were not, there were other ways of doing this. And they have resulted in a significant erosion of liberties in across uh, across different countries to a different extent. So we'll have to wait and find out exactly how this plays out. But uh, I find it concerning that. And, and the idea, this is surprising to me um, because, you know, when people talk about New Zealand, we often kind of think of ourselves, or at least, so I grew up in India, but I lived and worked in the United States for a long time before I moved to New Zealand. So in, in countries like United States, a lot of people think of New Zealand as being somewhat similar to the Scandinavian countries, you know, social welfare, free society. We tend to be quite liberal in in many of the policies, you know, prostitution is legal in New Zealand. We passed the euthanasia bill. Uh, these are major fights in, say, the United States, right? So we tend to think of New Zealand as more of a liberal society. So I have been surprised by by how much backlash people have faced 
for questioning the government. And uh, I have been surprised by how much New Zealand media have not questioned the government. I think there has been a significant lack of journalistic objectivity in this pandemic. And um, I always think that journalists should, as a default, journalists should consider themselves to be the opposition, right? That their job is not to mimic the government's line because the government has many ways of getting its message out. The media doesn't necessarily have to do it. So either play it down the middle or if anything, the media needs to err on the side of asking questions. If the media gets into this business of selling the government's line, their team of 5 million, etc., that's a bit of a problem. And I've been surprised by how unquestioning New Zealand's media has been on, on a number of issues. I expected them to you know, ask more searching questions, ask about, I mean, I even said this, for instance, if you, I've because I've written about this, if you read the newspaper, you will find that the same group of people, the same group of experts are quoted over and over again. But there have been significant amount of work showing that these models are wrong and, you know, or at least incomplete. For instance, I wrote a piece in New Zealand Herald saying why we shouldn't be relying on epidemiological models only. And the reason I say it is twofold. One is that the epidemiological models that we are relying on heavily are seriously incomplete because they don't allow for human expression or human response. So we these models kind of treat human response as a non-factor. So this is true of the original paper by Neil Ferguson at uh, Imperial College where the entire model assumes that there won't be a human response. But when faced with a deadly pathogen, humans respond. We wash our hands, we wear masks, we stay home when we felt sick, we don't visit sick relatives. These models don't allow for any of that. And therefore, these models end up kind of overestimating the impact of um, of lockdowns. Because if you look at the empirical data, you will find, again, um, John Gibson, you might want to talk to him at some point, at Waikato in New Zealand, he has done a lot of work. And he makes the point that if you look at, if you ignore the mathematical models, if you simply look at what has happened across countries, so this is just looking at the data that we can see, a lot of the responses come from people voluntarily changing their behavior. Because now that we have, you know, Google and things like that, we can track people, which is might be a bit controversial, but we can track people where they went, you know, did they go out, where they visited, how much they spent, etc. And much of the response comes from humans voluntarily changing their behavior. And therefore, because these existing models don't don't allow for this, there are people out there. There are people, uh, Martin Eichenbaum and Northwestern has done it, researchers in Minnesota have done it. What they do is they take these so-called epidemiological models and they incorporate human behavior in those models. And they show that lockdowns are never the proper response. So on one hand, you probably want some interventions, but the interventions are typically not lockdowns. The interventions are typically things like rapid testing, maybe selective self-isolation of some people and things along those lines. So somewhere in the middle, these 
these level four type lockdowns are not the right response. You wouldn't read about this in the in the newspapers. The other issue also, what I talked about, is that look, epidemiologists can tell us, okay, the the infection uh, uh, proportion here is such and such, or the fatality rate is such and such, right? But what we do with that information, right? So you tell me that, well, there's a risk of this happening. What we do with the information, what costs we are willing to bear, what liberties we are willing to sacrifice, that's a political decision. So to a large extent, our political leaders have kind of abrogated the responsibility by saying, oh, the experts are telling us this, but that's not their role. Whether we take over the right to suspend parliament or not, that's not an epidemiological decision. That's a political decision. And at that point, you're kind of saying, well, you know, is the safety need of society big enough that parliament needs to be suspended, right? Because I am teaching. I mean, I've been teaching for more than a year now via Zoom, large numbers of students. So it's not clear why parliament cannot meet uh, whether in person or via Zoom, etc., right? So these are essentially political decisions. And by simply saying, just trust the science, we are kind of giving over the decision-making power to people who aren't really the right people to make this decision. We need to have around the table, we need to have economists, we need to have legal scholars, right? We need to have people who bring a different perspective, people who can play the role of a devil's advocate by saying, really, is this something that needs this kind of response. And that certainly has not happened in New Zealand. I don't know if it has happened in other countries, but in New Zealand, those other voices providing other perspectives has certainly not been uh, true. Absolutely. I've been surprised as well at the lack of questioning from the media. They mostly seem to be acting as an amplifier for whatever the government says. And I've noticed that when journalists do ask the tough questions or they do openly criticise, they they tend to get dragged on social media. Um, it also seems to me that people with really genuine concerns like yourself um, and, and many of us and probably a lot of our listeners, I think, um, we're getting lumped in with some of the really out-the-gate tinfoil hat conspiracy theory types, you know, because um, there are people out there saying, you know, the whole thing's a hoax, there is no virus at all, and microchip and the vaccine, all this nonsense. Correct. And sometimes Correct. it feels like just asking perfectly reasonable, rational questions gets you lumped in with that crowd. Do you know what I mean? Correct. Yes. So there's a lot of that. There's there's a lot of that. Uh, and, and in fairness, I mean, there are people in New Zealand who have tried to question things. But and um, but one thing I can see is, you know, based on given I write, I can see the kinds of articles that get published and the kinds that don't get published. Uh, it's been hard to break through, but I have to say that there are people who have spoken up, and uh, but it's been been difficult. And y- exactly, you get lumped in with um, with these conspiracy theories. Um, so, so here's the problem. So the problem is, um, I, I wrote this somewhere. I said, look, here's statement one. COVID is not a dangerous disease. Statement two, COVID is a dangerous disease, but there are many other dangerous diseases. And therefore, we need to have a balanced response to make sure that we are what's called minimizing total harm or maximizing the greatest good of the greatest number. For some reason, if you made the second statement, people heard that he was saying COVID is not a dangerous disease. 
And what was difficult to understand was that people seem to rally around a third statement which says, we don't care. We will invest any and every resource to prevent death from COVID, no matter what else happens elsewhere. Now, this is problematic because I pointed out at the beginning, we are already seeing that there are other costs. There's costs in terms of mental well-being. There's costs in terms of other diseases that are not being treated. Other people surgeries that are getting postponed, right? Now, this, of course, varies from one country to another. Even in New Zealand, I think the evidence now suggests that the other costs are uh, higher. Here's, again, this is work done by John Gibson, because I'm talking about Gibson's work, because there's not a lot of New Zealand-based work based on New Zealand data, um, whereas other people have looked at data from other countries. So, as you know, as part of these lockdowns, we have had a significant uh, decrease in our GDP, in, in our gross domestic product. That's the, in our income, right? This is a total loss because this income isn't quite shifted forward. And one thing that happens is we know that there is a very strong relationship between fall in income and life expectancy. So when incomes fall, life expectancy falls as well. This relation is actually stronger for New Zealand compared to other OECD or other developed nations. So without going too far in numbers, so around a, a 10% fall in GDP will lead to about like maybe a one and a half percent decrease in life expectancy, right? So now if you factor these things in, then Gibson suggests that um, every Kiwi has experienced about an eight-month reduction in life expectancy. And if you now add those up, then that's the equivalent of about 46,000 deaths. That's like 46,000. Because you can, if you take every Kiwi, take eight months, add up those numbers of years. And it's not just Gibson. So, you know, the Treasury does these long-term forecasts of what's going to happen. And if you look at the Treasury's recent forecast, you will find that compared to 2016, Treasury is now estimating a reduction of two years for all Kiwis. So approximately, we were had a life expectancy of about 90, let's say. It's a bit different between males and females. So let's say it's about 90, and that has been scaled back to about 88 going forward. Now, these are imprecise measures, but so are all the mathematical models of COVID as well. But the point is that you have to take these costs into account also, right? So it just cannot be the case that we will say, we will save these lives right here, and we are going to ignore all these other lives. Now, one of the arguments you would have heard over and over again is, oh, we don't put a life, put a dollar value on human lives. But we do all the time. That's what actuaries do. That's what insurance companies do. If you went out in your car, you bought a car, you went out in your car and you died in a car accident and you can prove that you died because the car had faulty brakes or the airbags didn't inflate, you would be suing the company for damages. And they're going to look at how many years of life you had left, etc., and things like that to estimate. Not only that, Pharmac does this. <laughs> the Ministry of Health does this, right? In deciding which drugs we will subsidize and which drugs we will not, we have an estimate. The Ministry of Health estimate for the life of an average Kiwi adult is about $60,000 per year. 
So when we make these assertions, we make estimate these. So to suggest that you know we will don't put a dollar value on human lives, that's that's incredible. We do it all the time. You have to in some senses. And the government does it all the time. Formac does it. The Ministry of Health does it. So it's surprising why saying some of these things became politically so controversial. Yeah, it gets very emotive, doesn't it? You know, you want people to die. You care more about money than you do about lives. But, you know, you could argue it's the total opposite because we're not talking about all the other diseases and health conditions that should be being funded or, or could be being funded with just a fraction of what's been spent on COVID. You know, I, I think about the parents of children who have rare conditions or cancers who are just absolutely desperate for funding for right. treatment. And, and you know, they're, they're heartbroken when the budget comes out and there's nothing for them or even support for disabilities, you know, cochlear implants for deaf children, things like this, you know, where's their funding? But I'm reluctant to voice any of that sometimes because I don't want to be accused of wanting people to die from COVID. No, so that's why I wrote this book. Uh, it should be coming out by the end of this year, maybe early next year. It's called Nudged Into Lockdown. You can just go Google search, Behavioral Economics, Uncertainty, and uh, COVID-19. So what happened last year was um, I was actually, I was invited to go teach. I was on leave from the University of Auckland on research leave, and I was invited to teach at Harvard's Kennedy School. Um, so the Harvard Kennedy School is... Uh, it's meant for kind of, you know, mid-career senior policymakers, right? So these are people mostly, you know, you have all kinds, but, you know, you're undergraduate, but you have mostly kind of younger people, you have a lot of people from the military. So um, so I was talking about some of these things, so what are called cognitive biases. So for instance, um, as I mentioned, this, I, this question of identified lies versus statistical lies, we focus too much on things right in front of our eyes, ignoring the fact that there are other things happening in the background. Uh, so I was talking to them and they kept telling me, well, you know, how does it apply to COVID? So we talked about that. And eventually one of them who turned out he's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, um, he said, you know, why don't you write some of these things up? Because this is quite relevant. And uh, one of the arguments or one of the things that I argue in the book is that we suffer from some of these kind of decision making biases. And those biases actually become more pronounced when things are uncertain, right? Um, so I wrote this um, about an article that appeared in a newspaper where a journalist said, oh, such and such thing has happened in, in the UK. So many people, since Freedom Day, so many people are uh, getting hospitalized. The problem, of course, is you cannot evaluate these things in a vacuum. So you need to look at, you know, okay, so this is happening in the UK. What's their, you know, let's say fatality rate or infection rate, etc. right? How much is it per million? What's in France? What What's happening in Germany? What's happening in the United States? So, so the fact is that even with no restrictions, the UK is reporting better numbers than, say, the United States is, right? But in the absence of any of these contexts, unless somebody provides some context for you, it's actually very difficult for people to to decide what the right thing is. And one thing we know for sure, and this is certainly true of COVID-19, is that we tend to overestimate small probabilities, right? So 
most of us know that buying the lottery is is basically like a soccer's uh, game. The probability of winning is very, very small, but in our brains, we kind of blow it up. So the probability appears to be much larger than it actually is. But until and unless you kind of make some of these arguments, it's actually quite difficult for people to get their heads around. So if you have a particular narrative that's placed in front of them and kind of reinforced in many different ways, it's quite difficult to to change minds. It can be done, certainly, but it takes a lot of evidence, a lot of arguments to get people to see the other side. And to be absolutely honest with you, I've been teaching some of these things for, for a while. It actually took me this pandemic to realize how deep seated these problems can be in some senses and and this is not it's not a question of people being smart or dumb this is everyone we all are subject to these biases we all are subject to a large number of kind of unconscious that's the part of the problem that that if you talk to people they talk a lot about conscious biases you know discrimination and things like that but that that's not all that common it's that we have a lot of unconscious biases inside us that kind of come into play in many scenarios. And as I say in my book, the way to address some of those is to have always have people around the table who can play the role of a devil's advocate. You know, that's so, so the devil's, you probably know this, but devil's advocate was a, a position in the, in the Catholic church. So in the Catholic church from maybe 600 AD onwards or thereabouts, this was a position, advocatus diabolitus. And the devil's advocate's role was every time the church wanted to canonize someone, the devil's advocate's role was to speak against that, to point, you know, to argue why that wasn't a good idea. And the advantage to this is typically if you're sitting around a table and you kind of express a contrary view to what everybody, everybody else, you know, typically the CEO says something, oh, we should do this. And everybody then starts shaking their head saying, yes, 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 that's correct. That's correct. And the moment you express a contrary view, the moment you say, well, I don't think the prime minister got this right, you are the jerk. You are the, you know, why are you rocking the boat, right? What is your problem? You know, why do you always have to be the contrarian, right? So the advantage of having a person designated in that role is that it's the person's job to speak up, right? So this process continued till Pope John Paul II abolished that office, uh, I guess, when did John Paul II die? So let's say 1990s or thereabouts, right? Guess what has happened to the Catholic Church since then? The Catholic Church, since John Paul II's popeship, popehood, they have had more canonizations than in the 600 years prior to that, including Pope John Paul II. And Pope John Paul II's canonization has been severely questioned, partly because of the you know Catholic Church and the pedophilia cases, etc. But doing away with the post led to many more people being canonized, right? So that's part of the problem. That when you ask these questions, it's not that it's rocking the boat. These are questions that need to be asked. They're fundamental to the proper. Uh, functioning of democratic societies, because if you have no one asking those questions, your democracy is in a bit of a of a problem, I think. So, uh, so a lot of people, you know, including many of my 
collaborators, etc., they all talk about how polarized the United States is, right? They say, oh, the United States is so polarized. And it is. I, I think it is polarized. But the problem is the lack of polarization is not necessarily a good thing because polarization means that you have two groups of people arguing against about something with a rough balance of power on both sides. That's when you get polarization. But if you have a scenario where one side has the entire power and those asking questions have zero power, that may be lack of polarization, but it's not clear if that's necessarily a good thing. So sure, polarization can be bad. Polarization can make it difficult to get things uh, done. But that doesn't mean that lack of polarization where, you know, everybody speaks in unison with the same view, that's not necessarily a good thing. I think as we are finding out. The team of five million all singing the same tune. Yes, I think that's not necessarily. And, and I mean, think about it. In the team of five million, clearly, we are not including all the Kiwis that live overseas, right? They are not part of the team. Um, the Kiwis who are separated, whose families are separated, they are, I guess, not part of the team. So... So the lack of polarization is not necessarily uh, a good thing. And and a lot of people seem to think that, oh, polarization in the U.S. is uh, is a recent thing. That's not true. There have been many cases, as you probably know, um, George Washington's uh, vice president, Aaron Barr, shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel over political differences. So polarization is, a, is, a, is an endemic factor in most countries. It's... So, I'm laughing because I am aware, but I am only aware because of the musical Hamilton. <laughs> musical, that's right. That's right. I'm like, yep, I know what you're talking about, but I only know it in musical form. Sorry, I think George Washington, but I think it's John Adams's. Uh, Adams is vice president. Yeah. Uh, yes, Bob was the vice president. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. Um, going forward in, in New Zealand, how do you think we can challenge things? be able to ask the questions in an open way and not have this, I guess, culture or climate of, of shutting people down just for asking questions? I don't know the answer to that uh, necessarily. Um, one thing I talk about in my book, and I think one reason why Sweden was so strongly opposed to lockdowns was because a fundamental pillar of the Swedish constitution is the freedom of expression. So freedom of expression is a fundamental pillar of the Swedish uh, democratic system. One thing I have thought about, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but I think uh, New Zealand's lack of a written constitution can at times be problematic. Because I think lots of times what happens is the only way to settle something is to actually seek legal advice because it's not written down that this is the right. This is, you know, we have a Bill of Rights, but a lot of things are common law and therefore not that well defined. So, so these obvious, this is obviously a very big kind of broad societal question. It has to do with, you know, what or how we teach our children in our schools, 
what we do and teach in our universities. A lot of it has to do with the way kind of public funding of universities work and things like that. But some of the other people have to understand that that asking questions is a fundamental part of the democratic system. So it is not heresy, it is not blasphemy to say this is not right. And and this has nothing to do with labor or national. As I keep telling people, I think people find it uh, surprising, but I'm a Labor Party supporter. And uh, in my office, I have a big photo of me with Jacinda Ardern. It's a selfie that Jacinda Ardern took. And I, I personally think she's uh, she's quite charming. She's a charming individual in many ways. If you have met her and you talk to her, you'll find she's... But I disagree with a lot of her political uh, views. Uh, I think there's a strong streak of authoritarian tendencies in the government. And I would say the same against National Party. Uh, I have written things when John Key and Stephen Joyce were running the country, because that's kind of, you know, for even academics, journalists, that's kind of fundamental part of being critic and conscience of society, that, that you question things. And then, you know, sometimes the question justified, sometimes there are good reasons why something is happening. Yeah, I, I can relate. You know, I, I criticize this Labour government a lot. And often people assume that must make me a national supporter, which couldn't be further from the truth. It's like they just can't comprehend that you can criticize one party without supporting the other. Yeah, so in some senses, I guess I'm um, more I, I'm more concerned about individual rights and liberties and I'm maybe I, I'm more individualistic in my view and therefore I find it deeply problematic how the, our government and governments around the world have reached into many areas of our lives to dictate what should happen what we should do or should not do I think history suggests that that's not a good or winning strategy that you can do this for temporarily, but eventually human beings kind of you know uh, revolt against this kind of authoritarian overreach. And uh, a well-functioning democracy needs to find a balance between those two things. And currently, I think we are not doing so well in terms of finding this balance. Well, we need more people like yourself to speak up about these things. I, I think that our opposition has also not necessarily played as strong a role as they should have. And a lot of that has to do with fear, with, you know, with concerns and we get obsessed when whenever there is a there is a threat uh, but beyond that it's important to kind of look over the parapet and say well you know sure we have a threat now but, but is it worth sacrificing everything that we are sacrificing right now very 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 valid questions i think we might need to wrap this up because we are getting on for time but everything <laughs> you've said has been so interesting i wish we could talk for longer <laughs> Maybe we could have you back on the show another time, and I'm certainly going to read your book. It might be a little bit over my head, I'm sure, but I will give it a go. Oh no, 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 not at all. It's written for a completely non-technical. It's a non. It's a totally non-technical. It's some some charts and graphs, but it's a very non-technical thing. So, sorry, this is the problem of having professors on your show that they tend to talk. No, 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 no. I'm I'm really really glad that you talked. It was so interesting hearing what you had to say. My my kids always. Oh, here comes another lecture. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Professor. <laughs> but no, thank you very, very much for coming on. This has been such an interesting conversation. Um, and yeah, um, your book is called Nudged into Lockdown, 
is a longer title. Uh, yes, but that's a, that's a, that's a mean title, not Zunto Lockdown. Well, I will definitely be looking out for it. I can't sure. wait to read it, actually. Um, and yeah, thank you so much again, Professor, for joining us on the Free Speech Union podcast. Sure. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Kakitiano.